Hi everyone, my name's Karen Bowe. This morning's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens in God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, g'day. I'm John Warner from Trinity Church, Mount Barker. A couple of years ago, I was having a conversation with a prominent Christian leader of a parachurch organisation here in Adelaide, and I asked him how he was finding church. And he said, ah, look, if I'm honest, you know, it's neither here nor there, a bit humdrum, church is church, it's not really where the action is. Well, it wasn't the answer I was expecting. What do you think about his response? I mean, how might you sum up your experience of church for yourself at the moment? If we're honest, these sorts of ho-hum feelings about church, well, I suspect they're probably more common for us than we care to admit, aren't they? Especially in these strange times when being able to turn church on and off with a finger, well, it's pretty convenient, isn't it? Recently, my wife Geeta was reading her Bible and praying and she penned these words about how she was feeling about church. Good morning, uh, my name is Geeta and I'm standing here at Trinity Church Mount Barker and it's great to be back in person. A few weeks ago, as I was standing by for church online, I was thinking about how I was feeling about being at church, at home, and I wrote this little poem and I'd like to share it with you. It's called Stand By For Church Online. I love this church online stuff it comes without a cost. No need to put my shoes on, no looking for the lost. I come in isolation while sitting in my room. I haven't made an effort to walk across the room. To welcome in a stranger or bake for morning tea, I needn't lift a finger except to care for me. At first, I missed the gatherings, but now I love my home. 
It's just as Jesus warns us, the heart of man is stone. Well, I wonder how these words sat with you. Did they uh, capture any of the feelings or thoughts in your own heart? They do in mine. They highlight what the Bible teaches about what can so easily creep up on us and, well, like a thief in the night, can steal away our enthusiasm for gathering in our local churches and can even cause us to lose our joy and love for Jesus, for being Christian. And that's why today's reading from Ephesians 2, I think, is so helpful. You see, if last week was God's divine love song to remind us of the heart of God and his mission for all humanity... Well, this week is God's divine Baraka, if you like, uh, to remind and re-energise us why becoming active and involved members in, a, in our local churches, it's so good for us and our families. If last week was more about our vertical relationship with God, this week's focus is more on our relationships with one another in our local churches. And like last week, there's three parts um, to, to this passage. Uh, you, you'll see that in the outline, you can download that. Uh, the first is, you know, you are far away. The second, but now you've been brought near. And the third is that, well, so what does it mean for us in our local churches? Have a look with me uh, at point one, verses 11 and 12. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. You see, from talking about the spiritually dead state of all humanity in verses 1 and 3 last week, Paul's now focusing on Jewish or non-Jewish or Gentile people. Uh, Now, I don't know if you had a nickname growing up, one you didn't like being called, maybe. A couple of my nicknames, it was Herbie or Butch. But here's Paul using an offensive nickname for Gentiles that Jews love to use. That word uncircumcised, it literally means the foreskin people. The foreskin people. Because one of the distinguishing marks in the flesh for a Jewish male was having the foreskin of their penis cut off when they were eight days old. Ouch! <laughs> and so Jews were called the unforeskin people, naturally. Now, Paul's reminding these Jewish religious Christians in Ephesus that foreskin or no foreskin, that's not what makes someone acceptable to God. It never has and never will. That phrase, done in the body by human hands, it's the phrase God uses in the Old Testament to describe people who make useless idols with their hands. And Paul's, what he's doing here, taking a small detour to remind these religious Jews and people like them that circumcision in the flesh is no, of no value. And it's a timely reminder for religious people who maybe are from more ritualistic traditions that the sign of baptism, of communion, the sign of circumcision in the flesh, it doesn't help our access to God apart from Jesus Christ, only faith in Jesus Christ. Again, have a look with me there in verse 12. Verse 12. So remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul's painting a really powerful picture of just the hopeless isolation of, of just how far away from God 
people are apart from Christ. And he, he makes five points, five devastating points. We're Christless, homeless, friendless, futureless and godless. It's like those 12 boys in their football coach who got trapped um, you know, by the flood waters uh, four kilometres inside a cave in time in Thailand uh, several years ago. Do you remember the story? It's this sort of hopeless, sort of cut off, being far away from any help that Paul is alluding to here. Let's look a bit closer again. The first point, Christless. You see, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Remember just how far away or distant you were from Jesus. Paul's reminding these Gentile Christians that not only were they once ignorant about Jesus, but they were just not interested in Jesus and the God of the Bible. A little bit like two of my four brother-in-laws, who I got I get on really well with, they have both said to me, please don't try and talk to me about God or about religion, Jesus. Please don't invite me to church or anything. I'm just not going to come. I'm not interested. But this is how far these Gentile Christians in Ephesus were before Paul preached the gospel to them. And it's why people need for the gospel message of Jesus to be verbally shared with them if they're to become curious and want to explore Jesus further. Because they were once Christless, they were also homeless. Homeless. Excluded from citizenship in Israel, says Paul. You guys used to be excluded from citizenship in Israel. Paul's referring to the 2,100-year-old hostile relations between Jews and Gentiles. Now, we're only 12 chapters into reading the Bible and all humanity is well, stuffed without hope. They're doing evil all the time. But such are God's purposes of unstoppable love. God's focus, it falls on an idol-worshipping pagan called Abram. And God makes some stunning promises to him. Abram, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And get this, mate, through your seed or, or descendant or offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And here is God, 2100 years before Jesus. He's promising to end the reign of self and sin and evil in the world and bring faraway people home to God, to end the hostility between people and between people and God once for all time. Now, Abram, he had a son called Isaac, and he had a son called Jacob. And God renamed Jacob Israel. And this is how the human race became divided into Jew and Gentile. 2100 years before Jesus turns up. Now, none of us likes being left off the invite list, do we? Or being excluded. Gita's parents, they sent her to a Catholic school in Canberra. It was a good school. But even though Gita was being brought up to know Jesus by her mum, because she wasn't Roman Catholic, she was excluded from things and just made to feel like a second-class citizen in the school. A beautiful moment was when her caring friends, they decided to baptise her in the school trough, you know, to make a dinky die. I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> but have you ever felt excluded, you know, made to feel like you don't belong somewhere? Maybe when you moved somewhere, maybe when you moved to Mount Barker or Stirling or Victor, because you weren't born there. You were made to feel well, like you don't really belong, like you're not one of us and you never will be. And of course... We begin learning how to be clubby and clicky and exclude people from the sandpit days, don't we? And it's really sad when these things, they find their ways into local churches. 
You see, being excluded from citizenship, it's a picture of being like a refugee turning up, of being without a homeland, of feeling like you don't belong anywhere. You don't have a passport, you've got no citizenship, which means you've got no access to the benefits of, of our country, doesn't it? You see, Paul says, you Gentile Christians, you were once like this. You were friendless. You were once foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You're excluded from God's promises to Abram, from God's promises to Moses, excluded from God's promises to King David. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, the only way to access and benefit from God's covenant promises was to become ethnically a Jew or an Israelite. A Gentile had no access to these promises and therefore no other way of being blessed by God unless they actually joined with God's people. An example of that is with Rahab in Joshua chapters 2 through 6. You see, before these Gentile Christians heard and believed the gospel, they weren't just Christless or homeless or friendless, but they were without hope and they were without God in the world. You see, they were futureless, godless. Now, to be without hope, it's not being able to see a future for yourself, isn't it? And please, can I say, if that's you this morning at the moment, uh, please get in touch and talk to someone uh, with you at your local church. But biblically, to be without hope, it's like being on death row with, with no more appeals. You know, apart from Jesus, people are without God because, well, Jesus is the only access to God. But, but hang on a minute. Didn't all these Roman Gentiles worship pantheons of gods before they became Christian? I mean, how can they be godless or atheists, which is actually what the word means, atheist? You see, here's God closing the hatch on pluralist theologians. Uh, pluralist people who believe and teach that it doesn't really matter which God you believe in, as long as you're sincere and believe in a God or, or something, she'll be okay when you die. Now, I think I can appreciate why we really want this to be true, but it just couldn't be further from the truth of what Jesus himself taught. One example from John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To be an atheist in the Bible is to be ignorant and not know Christ Jesus and the true and living God of the Bible. Wow, five pretty sobering reminders of our status before becoming Christian, of our status apart from Christ. Christless, homeless, friendless, futureless, godless. I don't know about you, but you can just it's easy to forget just how empty life can be for people who live for created things rather than for the Creator who made them. How empty life can be apart from Jesus. But Paul says this is what we're meant to be regularly rehearsing and remembering so that we can know just how magnificent it is that now, now in Christ, we have been brought near. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who are far off have been brought near, near to God. How? Well, in Christ Jesus by the sin-atoning blood of Christ Jesus. 
Paul is saying that God has sent his only son to do everything, everything necessary in his death on the cross, so that any person who is estranged from God can be forgiven and come home to God with a guaranteed future with God when we die. That's why in verse 18 we're told that it's through Christ we have access to the Father by the Spirit. It doesn't matter who or what you are or, or what you've done, Jew or Gentile. Jesus has opened up for us the one access for far-off human beings so they can be brought near to God. Again, it's like the 12 boys in the footy coach who were trapped on that very small ledge, four kilometres in that Thai cave. You see, there they were, surrounded by water, pitch black darkness, without food. I mean, no one knew where they were. An international team of experts was gathered, they came in. Uh, after days of diving through the caves and searching, they were finally found and located. Another 10 days, that's what it took them to be rescued. How? Each boy had to be anaesthetized to be brought safely through the four kilometre maze of water-filled caves by divers one at a time. And just like it was each boy's only hope of being saved, who were so far away from their parents and a future, so in Christ Jesus and by his blood can any human being have any hope of being saved. It's the only way we can be brought safely home and near to God, but through Christ. It's why Paul says that Jesus is our peace, not once, but three times. The first time he says it is there in verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Thus making peace. Christ himself is our peace. They take us to the heart of Christianity and the heartbeat of your local church. They show us that Christianity is all about a reconciled relationship with your Heavenly Father through His Son Jesus. While the peace on offer comes because of an event, it is found in a person, Jesus. Not the cross, but He who was crucified on the cross. Not suffering, but He who suffered in our place for our sin. Friends, we'll only know this peace with God and with Christ's people only as much as we know Jesus, because he is the place of God's peace for us. How can this be? Well, as, as we just saw, because Christ has made peace in his death at the cross. Verse 14, he's made the two one. Verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus making peace. Verse 16, in this one body to reconcile people to God. How? Through the cross. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament laws for us. He's made the Old Testament laws redundant and obsolete. You see, now, because now, a way that a person relates to God is the same way a person is saved by God. It's by a faith union relationship with Jesus as we trust in and obey the gospel of God's love for us. It's why Paul, who was once the most zealous Jew, he writes in verse 14 that it's Jesus' death that's destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility. 
Now the wall that Paul's talking about is the wall that separated the court of the Gentiles in the temple in Jerusalem from the court of the Jews. This wall would proclaim to Gentiles, come this far and no further. On the wall were Thanatos or death inscriptions. Uh, he, let me read one for you. No foreigner may enter any, in anyone who is caught. Doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. See, while the physical wall was not destroyed until AD 70 by Rome, Paul is saying spiritually that the wall separating Jew and Gentiles, it was destroyed once and for all at Jesus' death. Again, verse 16, in his death, Jesus is put to death, literally killed their hostility. In his death, Jesus has killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Jesus the slain is the slayer of hate and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. God has made both one. He's made two into one. Jesus has reconciled both in one body, his body. Through King Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And this is not a Gentile becoming a Jew or a Jew becoming Gentile, but Jew and Gentile being created into a brand new humanity, one new man in place of the two. It's why Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. It's why at Jesus' birth, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, and peace to men on whom his favour rests. It's why on the eve of his death, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. It's why after his resurrection, Jesus came to his disciples through locked doors and said, Peace be with you. And it's why Jesus' apostle Paul tells us that Jesus is our peace. And again in verse 17, that even though it was Paul who preached the gospel to these Gentile Christians in Ephesus, Paul writes, It was Jesus who came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the peace of Jesus. Do you know this peace for your life? Is this the peace that dominates your relationships in your local churches? You see, our local churches, they should be a glimpse of heaven. New communities, new societies, where the reconciling love and power of God's peace in Jesus is on display for the whole world to see. As we love and serve the other, in the same way Christ has loved and served us. As we forgive one another, as our Heavenly Father has forgiven you and I, even though we don't deserve it. It's why Paul finishes with a portrait, a beautiful portrait, of our local churches. Verses 19 through 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And in him, you too are being built together, built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now that is a big thought. See, as Christians, we are all fellow citizens with all God's people. 
Christian, you are part of the family of God. We are all members of his household. And our foundation for becoming members? Well, it's not concrete, but Christ himself. You see, we're joined together into a holy temple. That is, being built together into a home for God himself. God's not building bricks and mortars, buildings. No, no. God's building a people in whom and among whom he dwells. And so eager is Paul to stress a new Christian's identity in Christ. He invents two brand new words here. Joined together and built together. Two brand new words in the original language. You see, there's only one sort of reconciled people of God. It's this sort. When we become Christian, it's a radical, subversive revolution of identity. We're no longer to think of ourselves as Jew or Gentile, Australian or Asian, English or American, Indian or African. So you're either a Christian or you're not. Now, as people come to visit us at our churches and join our local churches and mine, I mean, what should they experience? Well, shouldn't they experience us being totally blind to their colour and ethnicity, totally blind to their race, language, religious pedigree, totally blind to their gender, to their age and education and class? For dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if Jesus, who is your peace and mine, if he's blind to all these things in us... (laughs) If he's accepted you and I, if Jesus has torn down and destroyed all these walls that divide and separate and imprison us once for all time in his cross, dear brothers and sisters, what right do any of us have? And how offensive to Jesus for any of us to even try and build any sort of divisive wall or click or separating fence in our local churches, walls and fences that Jesus died to tear down and destroy once for all time. Well, friends, it should be our greatest joy to forgive and forego. If not our joy, then our duty of love in response to God's love for us. To be this people of peace in our local churches. For our own good, for the well-being of those around us, for the sake and salvation of those who are still lost to God and to God's glory. To God's glory. Amen.